This is Africa Digest. With your latest news this hour, a very good afternoon. I am Onilin Sinsi. South Africa's former president Jacob Zuma has claimed that he never engaged in any unlawful activities with the controversial Gupta family. After 130 days of testimony from more than 80 witnesses, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondor is hearing Zuma's testimony at the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Parktown, Johannesburg. Some have placed Zuma and the Gupta family directly at the center of the State Capture project. Zuma says he was introduced by former Minister of the Presidency during the Tabombegi administration, Esop Pahad, to the Guptas. The person who introduced them was Iso Pahad. They were introduced as good business people. They knew a lot of comrades. When Mandela was a president, they started being very close and was friend of Mandela. And when Mandela was gone, they were friends with Tabo. I've never did anything with them, unlawfully or whatever. They just remained friends. I've explained how my son got onto them when he looked for a different kind of business people to work with. And I've wondered why people think that my relationship with them is not right when they had relationship with other people. Two other presidents have had relations with them. A Zimbabwean opposition politician facing charges of advocating the overthrow of President Emerson Nangagor has been freed on bail by the High Court after spending six days in detention. The deputy chairperson for the Movement of Democratic Change was arrested last week and charged with attempting to subvert the government, a crime that carries a 20-year jail term upon conviction. Sikala, through his lawyer, has denied the charges. Zambian President Edgar Lungo has fired the country's finance minister and replaced her with the central bank's deputy governor responsible for operations. On Sunday evening, Lungo's office thanked the outgoing treasury head, Margaret Mwanakatwe, for her service during her tenure. No reasons have been given for the Lungo's decision to fire Mwanakatwe. Hong Kong's leader Carrie Lam said protesters who took part in violent demonstrations on Sunday were rioters. She has been visiting injured police officers in hospital. They were hurt during running battles and with protesters in a shopping centre. 
And lastly, France's foreign minister says Europe must stay united as it struggles to save the international nuclear agreement with Iran. The minister and his EU counterparts are discussing ways of preventing the deal unraveling amid rising tension between Tehran and Washington. The BBC's Adam Fleming says the EU is running out of options. They've used one of their tools, which is trying to prevent European firms being affected by the side effects of American sanctions being reimposed on Iran. They've used another tool, which is words and diplomacy. One tool they have not used yet, though, is the dispute settlement mechanism that's actually in the Iran deal. And it could ultimately end up at the United Nations Security Council and could ultimately see sanctions being reimposed on Iran. But... The EU and the EU member states who are the signatories of this deal haven't been prepared to do that yet. Channel Africa News, I am Onilinsinsi. Welcome to Change Your Game here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Peta. What uh, GDF Forum is about and what an opportunity it provides specifically for the audience of Change Your Game. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. More support, just like invest more in young creatives and entrepreneurship, but actually do it. Don't just talk about it, actually do it, you know, because there are a lot of creative minds, there are a lot of intelligent human beings in our country, so I think they should invest more in that and take it seriously, because it's a real thing. Catch us every Friday at 900 hours Central African time with Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Central African time. Good evening and thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, and we're online on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Magesi, driving the show with Onelens Inti, Tracy Boomgaard and Neto Chimani. Some top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Former South African president makes explosive claims as he finally makes the long-awaited appearance at the State Capture Commission. Officials in the DRC locate and vaccinate the people who came in contact with an individual who tested positive for Ebola in the country's city of Goma. In economics, Kenyan taxi drivers who use hailing apps such as Uber have gone on strike to force operators to double fares. And in sport, congratulations all round for Daryl Impey on his Tour de France Stage 9 victory yesterday. But right now we start off right here in South Africa, where former President Jacob Zuma now stands before the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture, which he appointed himself under the recommendations of the former public protector Tulima Tonsela. In his first testimony before the Commission, Zuma said there is a political conspiracy against him and was... Uh, elaborate on highlighting that it is his historic. However, Christine Boerta, manager of the Center for Constitutional Rights, says the president must answer questions posed to him by the commissioners limited to the terms of reference of the commission. 
So I think it's very important, like you said, to go back to your terms of reference for the State Capture Commission. And as the Deputy Chief Justice said um, when he started this morning, he reminded everyone, this is not a criminal trial. This is a fact-finding investigation, and the purpose is to make recommendations, and which is guided by a public protector's report. And if you go back to the terms of reference, it's quite wide, various aspects which should be investigated. But one of the first ones relate to whether the president played any role in the alleged office of cabinet positions being given, whether any attempts made or due to influence members of the national executive, and also did the president or national executive play any role in this regarding corruption and the awarding of tenders. So there's very specific terms of reference which relate to it. And just going back to what Deputy Chief Justice said, it's not a criminal trial. So the fact is, Mr. Zuma, our former president, has been implicated by evidence and statements given by witnesses. We've seen the statement of Tema Maseko, psychic mentor, Mr. Nene, former Minister of um, Finance, Mr. Praveen Gordhan, Barbara Hogan as well, former Minister of Public Enterprises, and um, former Minister of Police as well, specifically directly linking the president. And these statements, because he is implicated in these statements, need to be answered. So in terms of how the Judicial Commission of Inquiry is specifically regulated, obviously by regulations and its rules for procedure, and implicated people are given an opportunity to respond in writing. So this has happened specifically in Mr. Zuma's case as well now. Now, it was interesting, I don't know if you heard this morning, Mr. Zuma's legal counsel has been saying, well, started off by saying, you know, uh, relating to a correspondence, and uh, so basically he was asked end of April to appear because he's specifically implicated in various um, statements and evidence given, as I said. Uh, his legal counsel has argued and said, well, you know, in terms of your rules, you have to inform a person, mm. and a person has an option to elect to challenge it or to ask to cross-examine it and or elect not to do anything. That was his first one. And he said, for all fairness, um, so this is one of the big narratives which is also played in the media, you know, Mr. Zuma should have been given all the questions he would have specifically been mm. asked. And he argues, his legal counsel, you know, he says, well, um, there's a possibility that he might oust people and he doesn't know what his client will say now. Uh, it might be problematic for himself and there's a risk and a danger to it. It's very dramatic. But if mm. you actually go to the rules and you look at the regulations of um, the Judicial Commission of Inquiry, it specifically says the Deputy Chief Justice has the right to direct mm. any person against whom allegations have been made to respond in the writing, and it specifically protects people as well, witnesses giving evidence. Any self-incriminating evidence and um, may not be used in any criminal proceedings against mm. that person unless, uh, you know, the charge of perjury, and so, because remember he's giving evidence also on so. earth now. What are your thoughts around uh, the types of facts that have been brought forward um, and the fact that there's little pepper trail to prove it? That is definitely a difficult aspect of um, the capture of commission um, of the inquiry. Is looking at the evidence presented. I mean, there is rules say you know like an, a chairperson can call for documents and for any person giving evidence to produce such a document. But to give you a bit more insight into, I mean, there are direct instances where the president is implicated in statements. I mean, Timbo Maseka has said the president has called him. That he's you know asked just before Ajay Gupta asked him to meet him. Mm. You received a call from a president's office and the president said to him, please help the Gupta guys. 
you know, you need a response from a former president in that regard. Mm. Um, there's very specific instances where there's direct links to how the minister um, acted, how the president acted. You know, it's more indirect, his manner, what, did he, what he allowed to do. I mean, there's various aspects which will make it a bit more difficult with more indirect, but you know, definitely direct instances you'd be able to get an answer from him. Regarding your paper trial, it is definitely um, it's a problem, it's especially when it comes to following money, and it is a, it's a clear concern. And, and, and in that, you know, you're speaking about that indirect uh, implication. How can the commission navigate itself around that particular matter? Because those indirect situations are sometimes the, the pivotal ones. So, you know, you're guided again by the Constitution and various laws, such as the Public Finance Management Act, sure. um, governing how um, ministers should act and the fact how he interfered in the sure. appointment process of, yeah. you know, transfer chairperson. And, and despite having, you know, those various councils' opinions submitted by Barbara Hogan to him, and he didn't respond to it. So there is a constitutional duty. as an indirect reliance. You know, he didn't act as in terms of the Constitution or laws. And you need to hear his side and his understanding of it and because I mean there's a specific um, allegation made you know we presented to you his opinions this is what a law said and you specifically interfered and said well you know until the disciplinary hearing of Gama is done mm-hmm. no appointment should be made why that's Christine Boerter manager of the Center for Constitutional Rights speaking to Channel Africa's Benjamin Mushatama Former South African President Jacob Zuma has concluded the first day of his testimony at the Commission of Inquiry into State Capture in Johannesburg. Zuma has accused some of his comrades of doing wrong and he said, despite this, he's not a bitter person but wants peace. This is the first day that the former statesman is on the stand to detail his relationship with the politically connected Gupta family. Zuma says he asked what was wrong with the relationship with the Guptas and nobody could tell him. More from South African political analyst Theo Fenter. Well, uh, three or four things. Firstly, um, that he is the victim of several things. Secondly, that there's a major conspiracy that includes not only people within the ANC, but also includes intelligence services of uh, other countries. Thirdly, that he tried to do things, discussed it with his fellow comrades. Nobody told him. What is wrong? So my overall impression is today is the day where he's going to to start with a narrative that he is actually a victim and um, that um, by implication, several people around him knew what he was doing and they said nothing. So, um, yeah, I think it's the beginning of a long story. Are you shocked uh, at the mention of uh, things like the intelligence from other countries and the deviation that uh, Zuma is making to look at other countries and, and other comrades? No, not, not at all, because he's, he's putting the blame outside himself. In other words, he, he's the innocent victim, and we knew that he was the spy master. That has been one of the key characteristics of Mr. Zuma. I mean, he's been threatening for the last few years on files that he has, names that he knows, that, but he won't make it available. That is the typical game of people in the intelligence community because they trade us in secrets. They trade in information. And today he just showed that was really the Zuma we had for nine years as president, the old spy master. How important was it for Zuma to appear in the commission for the country? 
I think it's very important. It, um, it's a commission that he created himself, although he didn't create the commission because he was a good leader. He created the commission because Tulima Doncella said he had, and there were several court cases um, forcing him to do that. But the fact that, as an old president is speaking, and remember today is about him talking. It's not cross-questioning. That is still coming. And there will be some serious questions and so on and so on. So I think the judge today allows him the latitude to speak. What do you make of his complaint, uh, talking about uh, Tulima Donzela having taken the role of, as he said, uh, kind of taken what he was supposed to have been given the responsibility of as the president, but rather that was taken away from him and given to Tulima Donzela, a former public uh, protector. Who else would be the person to be trusted by the public in terms of getting to the truth and the core of it? What do you make of that when he was complaining? Well, I had my doubts about Jacob Zuma's understanding of the complexities of our very, very sophisticated constitution. And those things are all constitutionally determined, and then our constitutional court from time to time provide interpretation to that. And I mean it's public knowledge that Zuma never really accepted truly modern sellers judgments on things, and he even made jokes about the amphitheater and Kandla and so on and so on. So, no, no, that and as well as the way in which he reflected on Noahud Ramatlodi tells you that he has a few individuals that he just doesn't like and he will make whatever is necessary to make them look bad. Another deviation mentioning that the Guptas were friends with our former statesman Mbegi as well as Nelson Mandela. What do we look into that? How do we analyze that? That is the same issue that is currently bugging Pravin Gordhan. You attend a cocktail party and, and somebody is there and you're at the same cocktail party, it doesn't mean you're friends. It doesn't mean you're doing business with them. It doesn't mean any of those things. It only means you were at the same place at the same time. And, and he's taking that and then he extrapolates that into that the fact that they had similar relations. Um, it just shows that it's very, very difficult and sensitive for politicians to determine who they with and who they mix with because it may come back to bite them like it does for Zuma. Do you think that uh, Zuma's testimony will leave more questions than answers? Yeah, I think so. I think he's going to be a very difficult witness in the cross-examination to provide clear answers. I think he will evade and he will do what he did in court and several other cases. Um, he will give long answers without any real big comprehensive nature to it. It's like playing his game, which his lawyer mentioned, and which they, according to themselves, doesn't know what we mean by that. That was the Ofenta South African political analyst on the line talking to Asanda Beda. 17.18 Central African time. Uh, Africa Digest will continue just after this. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussion.
discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. South African consumers are feeling the pinch as the sluggish economy and rising prices erode their ability to save enough for their retirement or a rainy day. This is according to the findings of the Old Mutual Savings and Investment Monitor Survey, which was released earlier today. The annual monitor tracks shifts in the financial attitudes and behavior of South Africa's working metropolitan population. More from Lynette Nicholson, Head of Research at Old Mutual. Has been running for about 11 years now, since 2009. And every year around about May, June, we go into field where, um, in partnership with an external supplier, we go and interview a thousand working metropolitan households. Those are across seven major urban areas in South Africa. And we do that face to face because it's quite an involved interview talking about finances. And um, yes, then we aggregate the results and present um, what we found. So what would you say were the main findings this time around? So 2019, uh, there weren't any shocks in the results in terms of general, the general stress levels and the general lack of savings among South Africans. And unfortunately, you know, every year that we present results, the news is still quite somber. Um, People are struggling, people are stressed, Um, confidence in the the South African economy is not that great, even after elections. So generally quite a negative outlook. Um, But one or two things stood out as being really interesting. And the one is that the amount of money that people say they are putting into stock sales every month. Um, has risen dramatically year on year um, across all income categories, and we delved into that a little bit more. And the other interesting fact is that our personal loans, uh, people taking our personal loans, has also increased year on year. Whether that is personal loans from financial institutions or personal loans from family and friends, um, it has increased dramatically as our results show. So with July being savings month in South Africa, just how important is it for one to save? Why is it important or is it important? Absolutely. Everyone um, needs to save, not only for the short term, but for the long term as well. And there are really three things that we like to put across. And the first is understand your finances. If we don't understand our finances, we actually can't do anything. So don't put your head in the sand and just live from day to day or month to month. One really needs to sit down and look at your finances and understand what's going on. The other one is seek professional advice, seek um, financial advice. And, you know, often we have people saying to us, but I don't want to approach an advisor because um, I don't have enough money. Now, that's quite... um, would be counterproductive, but that's exactly why an advisor is there for you. 
to help you. And the other one is to plan ahead. It kind of fits into the other two, but, you know, you've got to plan. So by next year, this time, what do I want? Where do I want to be? How much money would I have liked to have saved? That was Lynette Nicholson, Head of Research at Old Mutual, speaking to Ntlantla Mashangu. The Orem Institute in South Africa has launched a new technology at the Winnie Mandela Clinic in Tembisa in the country's Gauteng province, which it says aims to make long queues at public health clinics a thing of the past. Using the pillar box, people living with HIV and other chronic health conditions can now collect their life-saving medications in just under a minute without entering the clinic or receiving assistance from a healthcare worker. More from Jonathan Grund, a branch chief for PEPFAR, Quality Improvement at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, South Africa. Telebox is actually a homegrown innovation. It was invented by a South African engineer. Part of his experience waiting in long queues to collect medication. So how it works is a person is enrolled in a clinic's collection program and receives a six-month prescription for chronic medication. These medications are pre-packaged and loaded into the telebox, which is basically just like a locker where medication is stored. And then the system sends the person an SMS notifying them that their medication is ready. The person receives a PIN, and then the person goes to pick up their medication with this PIN. And through that, they're able to access their medication without having to go into the facility and without having to go through the queue. Why do you think such technologies are essential at public health facilities? I mean, on the part of the patient, it's convenience. uh, But then generally, what is the benefit? Sure. So certainly it's convenient, as you said. And it's really about trying to give clients different options. And one of these options is trying to have these external pickup points available. So these pickup points allow patients to choose where they go to get their medication. It improves the patient experience. As you said, it's convenient. But it's really making it easier for people to commit to taking medication for the rest of their lives. In addition, it's helpful because it keeps people, it allows them not to have to go to the facilities and it reduces the burden on the healthcare workers in the facilities because the foot traffic is reduced for people who just need to go get their medication. I mean, it's helping to accelerate our progress towards the UNAIDS 90-90-90 targets for epidemic control for HIV in South Africa. Absolutely. So it's in Tembisa and Gauteng at the moment. Do you have plans to create other convenient medication pickup points in communities elsewhere? Yes. The innovations like Pellebox are part of a broader collaboration that we have between PEPFAR and the National Department of Health. So the Central Chronic Medicine Dispensing and Distribution Initiative, or CCMDD as we call it, is one of these initiatives that has a goal to expand access to medication through the creation of convenient pickup points like Pellebox, for example. So people who are living with HIV and who are virally suppressed or people living with other chronic medications, they can collect their medications at these places. There's plans to expand this into commercial pharmacies like Clicks and Dischem, as well as other community-based locations such as churches or smart lockers like Pellebox. But patients choose to pick up their medications from a certain point. They can choose a place that's as convenient as possible for them. Um, and if they want, they can continue going to the Pele box or they can choose a fast lane at a queue in a health facility that's nearby to them. But currently, there's about 1,500 of these pickup points nationwide, and the number has been increasing significantly since March. Um, and so we're committed to trying to increase these as much as possible so people can have as many options to pick up their medication. Awesome. Well, is it uh, currently operational now in Tembisa? Uh, Yes, it is. There was a launch very recently, and we're currently trying to scale up and include as many of these pellet boxes, pickup points as possible.
And that's Jason, Jason Grund, a branch chief for PEPFAR Quality Improvement at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, South Africa, talking to Asanda Beda. Top African health experts are considering forming a team of experts that will be called upon during health emergencies in the continent. The president of the Africa Academy for Sciences, Professor Felix Decora, says the continent cannot always wait for outside help when faced with health health emergencies, especially as it has the expertise to deal with disease outbreaks. He spoke at the opening of Delta's Africa uh, Scientific Conference in Dakar. Uh, Sarah Kimani reports. In 2014, West Africa was hit by the worst ever Ebola outbreak. The disease affected more than 29,000 people and killed over 11,000. To contain the spread of the disease, international health experts were deployed to the affected countries, including African health workers. The success of these teams, partly now what informs a decision to form a standby committee of African experts to deal with health emergencies on the continent. Professor Felix Dakora is the president of the African Academy of Sciences. It is sad that whenever we have any outbreak in the continent, we literally have to sit down and wait for colleagues who are experts to come from overseas to come and address the problem. And indeed, some of you may know or you may not know, but when this happens and they go back, we actually hardly have access to the data. We don't know where the data is gone, and when the same outbreak comes back, we don't know where to fall upon for experience in order to uh, resolve the problem. Under the umbrella of the African Academy of Sciences based in Nairobi, the network will seek to work closely with the African Union to ensure representation from each of the continent's five regions. We need to have regional representation. So if the outbreak is in West Africa, it's important that there is a West African either a vice chair of it that will then alert the others and immediately we can uh, respond to it. Meanwhile, young Africans will for the next two days present their groundbreaking research findings at a meeting in Dakar. Their research focuses on some of Africa's health challenges including malaria, HIV and AIDS, maternal and child health among others. The science is really leading the policy, is the policy driver, we can say that, for the Minister of Health. The African Academy of Sciences works with African universities and research institutions to train and retain health researchers as the continent seeks to bridge its huge human resource gap. Sarah Kemani, Senegal. 17.30 Central African Time. Let's cross on over to the news desk. Here is Onelensinsi with your latest news headlines. South Africa's former president, Jacob Zuma, has outlined a grand conspiracy dating back to 1999 involving foreign and local spies who have allegedly plotted to unseat him. Zimbabwean opposition lawmaker Job Sikala is released on bail after being charged last week with treason and spending six days in custody. And the World Health Organization chiefs say the confirmation of an Ebola disease victim inside the crowded Congolese city of Goma could be a game changer. Channel Africa News, I am Onelin Sinsi. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. 
I, Nelson Hodesasa Mandela. And I solemnly and sincerely promise that we'll always promote all that will advance the Republic and oppose all that may harm it. And maintain the Constitution and all other law of the Republic. I, Matamera Siro Ramaphos, swear that I will be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. So help me God. Channel Africa. Officials in the Democratic Republic of Congo have located and vaccinated the people who came in contact with an individual who tested positive for Ebola in the country's city of Goma. This is a major transit hub that is home to more than one million people on the Rwandan border. The presence of the virus has raised concerns of an outbreak in the densely populated area. More from Nicole Fasina, Ebola virus disease coordinator for the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Yes, it's unfortunate news. There was a case that was tested positive from a pastor who was traveling from Butembo to Goma. The positive side is there's been a quick response to date. The contacts of the individual are being vaccinated. The individual is being returned and admitted into an Ebola treatment center in Butembo. And what's really disheartening about the situation is that it's occurring in a city of Goma which is a highly dense city. We have roughly one million people here, and it's close to the Rwanda border. It's about 20 minutes away from the Rwanda border. It really emphasizes the importance of preparedness in chasing this epidemic. Having teams prepared in Goma, but as well in Rwanda, are really crucial to this outbreak. As aid agencies, have you been working to prepare for this eventuality? Yes, our teams have been working now since the the start of the outbreak. We have teams set up in Goma, safe and dignified burial teams in Goma, as well as a decontamination base, which is where the team makes sure that their the vehicles and their, the reusable clothing are disinfected with chlorine. So this is where they go after they've done a safe and dignified burial. We are also training healthcare workers. And so this provides training to people as they're coming into a health clinic on identifying signs and symptoms that could be related to Ebola, but then proper procedures to follow if there is a case. And this is exactly how the case was identified for the individual, the positive case that was identified in Goma and is now returning back to Batembo. But further than that, we've had community engagement at the core of our response in Goma and as well in our Red Cross teams who have been responding in Rwanda as well. So not only at at points of entry, but as well in community engagement and preparing the safe and dignified burial teams, as well as equipment needed on the Rwandan side. Tell us about the kind of symptoms that the individual presented with that gave you an indication that you could be dealing with an Ebola case. I don't have all the details of the cases, but what I can tell you is that the signs and symptoms were picked up at a health clinic. The individual would then be admitted in into an Ebola treatment center back in Butembo, and quickly his contacts were identified. But are you concerned, Nicole, that the disease could spread faster in such a densely populated area? 
This is a risk and our teams are on high alert. This is also being discussed with all partners involved in the response, the Ministry of Health and, and ourselves and WHO. As you mentioned, Goma is a city with a high population density of roughly one million people. And further than that, there's a lot of cross-border movement between here and Rwanda. So there's a city called Giseni right on the Rwandan border, which is 20 minutes away from where we are in Goma. And I think, you know, we aren't surprised by this case because we have been preparing for it. But definitely being in Goma at this moment is quite close to home and it's something that we need to be on top alert for. But as well, it just goes to show that this operation will need sustained donor support as well. I mean, this it goes to show that the outbreak is not yet over. And in fact, we need a heightened attention to preparedness and dedicated funds to carry us through till the end of this operation. As IFRC, what is your response mainly focused on? Our main focus is on having a community-led response. It's only by having a community-led response that we'll be able to tackle this outbreak. And what that means is not just informing communities, but it means involving them in a response. So involving almost the 1,000 survivors of Ebola from this epidemic as a force for behavioral change at the village and town level. It means listening and hearing to what communities are saying so we can adapt our messaging and stop the spread of rumor tracking. But also, we have a data-driven response, and so we collect this information daily from the communities and reflect back on it so that our approach is best localized to those communities, not just um, in community engagement, but through our safe and dignified burial processes, through processes that are happening at health clinics, etc. But at the core of it is the communities, and our 1,400 volunteers are from the communities themselves responding back in their communities. And that's Nicole Fasina, Ebola Virus Disease Coordinator for the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, talking to Elizabeth Ledicha. Health cannot be a question of income, it's a fundamental human right. These are the words of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Mandela, emphasizing the significance of access to health care irrespective of race, religion, or creed. His dream became a reality when an academic hospital named after him was established in Mtata in the Eastern Cape. Nguruleko Nyembezi filed this report. The Nelson Mandela Academic Hospital, an imposing structure in the heart of the city of Mtata, named after the philanthropist and freedom fighter. The idea was to prioritize rural communities to have quality and equal access to the healthcare system. The institution has played a role in realizing Nelson Mandela's dreams to change the lives of ordinary people and also creating jobs to improve their socio-economic conditions. Mandela regarded inaccessibility to health facilities as a violation of human rights and advocated for an immediate change. The clinic building program often seems insignificant by the standards of those who have resources in abundance, but in the rural areas, and sprawling urban settlements. This is a matter, literally, of life and death. A urologist at the hospital, Dr. Mbuiselo Madiba, says Mandela donated 100 million rand to make the academic hospital a reality. He said on that day, he said, I'm giving you 100 million to go and build the academic hospital. The first 100 million came out from Umadiba. 
100 million and Madiba said right now as I'm talking to you it was endorsed at a national level in parliament say right the hospital in Umtata which is going to be built will be named after Nelson Mandela this is one of the reasons that we have this is the only university this is the only hospital that has got the statue of Nelson Mandela the Nelson Mandela academic hospital has contributed in changing the lives of the people the penal reconstruction program where more than 50 young men that lost their men to botch the circumcision has made them regain their confidence as Dr. Madiba explains. Because when they urinate, they go to sit down. They can't urinate in front of other people. We came up with this uh, program which is called penal rehabilitation. We've managed to do over 50 operations currently and those that have done, they're, they're managing to pass urine standing. They've gone back to be Men now they can feel they can urinate with other boys. They can you know take out their clothes or even leave the shower. You know there's no problem. It's that program is being handled here only in Nelson Mandela Academy in the whole of South Africa. We're the only one that successfully done this, and I'm proud to say right now we've done over 50. A number of cancer sufferers from the rural areas of the Eastern Cape are gradually benefiting from Madiba's dream of changing the lives of ordinary people. Zali Maboza was diagnosed with prostate cancer a few years ago. He is now clear about what cancer can do to you. My advice is to the public to go for tests for the cancer of the prostate. Presently, it's a, a very, very serious outspread. And in many cases, it disrupts uh, the social life at home. It causes troubles, I would say, misunderstanding in married couples. Sexual life is not enjoyable. So in any case, I suggest that men at the age of 30 upwards, they go for blood tests. Dr. Madiba says they have a an oncology unit to help cancer survivors. An oncology unit in this hospital, brand new. And secondly, our premier, Oscar Mabuyan, has committed millions of rents to buy a machine to start oncology. Within 100 days, we must be having up a, a what do you call it, a radiation facility here because of the machine. So what I'm trying to say is everybody is supporting this, of which those things wouldn't have been there if there was no Nelson Mandela Academy Hospital. So our people are benefiting out of that. We can go anywhere and find out. They'll tell you, you know, what has been done to have cancer uh, services in this area. It's one of the things that can be taken as a benefit into our community, especially in this area. Anybody who loves to fight socio-economic issues which have handicapped millions of people throughout the globe, those are my heroes. Those who know that the word democracy is empty if the people have nothing to put in their stomachs. Because most of the crime that you see, it is because of lack of employment, poverty, and so on. And those people who have committed themselves to address such social evil as the nation celebrates Nelson Mandela's month, the country will be out to do good in honor of the great statesman Nelson Khorisata Mandela. I'm Gurule Konyembezi Namchata, Eastern Cape. I'm an actress, I'm a motivational speaker, born with albinism. Um, the nurse first asked my mother, is your husband white? My mother said, no, why are you asking me that question? When I grew up, there was no publication of person with albinism disappearing, mm. being stolen. You see, it was happening, but there was no exposure as it happening now. Hi, I'm Pule Mulebati, the presenter of the Albinism Report. 
a program that demystifies myths and mysticism on albinism, highlighting challenges and achievements of people with albinism. Tune into the Albinism Report on the following times, Monday 5 past 9 in the morning to quarter to 10 Central African time and from 5 past 10 to quarter to 11 Central African time, Tuesday at 5 past 2 in the morning to quarter to 3 Central African time. The Albinism Report, an enlightened narrative with me, Ule Mulebazi, on Channel Africa from an African perspective. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1,000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1,000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. And right now it's time for us to cross it over to the money desk. Here's Tracy Boomgard with your economics news. Thank you, Samora. Zimbabwe's inflation rate has climbed to 175% the highest level since hyperinflation forced the government to abandon the Zimbabwe dollar 10 years ago. The BBC's Will Ross. Reviving Zimbabwe's economy is proving to be far harder than predicted. Investor confidence is still low and now the crisis is deepening at some speed. Between May and June, the annual inflation rate almost doubled to 175%. Of course, that's nowhere near as bad as it was back in 2008. Then the authorities stopped releasing data after inflation peaked at close to 80 billion percent. The local currency then had become almost worthless, so for years the US dollar was used. The government's now trying to reintroduce the Zimbabwe dollar, but its value is likely to keep dropping, especially as more food has to be imported due to a drought. There has been mixed reaction to the African Free Trade Area Agreement. Analysts and business people in the six-member Central African Economic and Monetary Community, CEMEC, says that although the AFCFTA launched in Niger recently brings hope for pan-African trade, they are not sure CEMEC will be fully implemented anytime soon. Its similar free trade area has been plagued by corruption, national egos and a limitation of movement that have stunted the initiative. CEMEC leaders have been urged to make strong political decisions that will make it possible for their people to travel freely among Gabon, Equatorial Guinea, Chad, Central African Republic, Cameroon and Congo, the members of the economic bloc. South Africa's power utility has been hit by another exit. Eskom's group treasurer Andre Pele has become the latest high-profile resignation from the struggling power utility. Eskom has confirmed his resignation, saying he will be leaving at the end of next month. 
Pele's departure follows less than two months after the resignation of Eskom CEO Pakamani Hadebe. Pele was appointed senior manager for funding execution in the Eskom Treasury Department in 2011 and was promoted to his current position in 2016. No reason for his resignation has been provided, but Eskom has thanked him for the role that he played in ensuring that the power utilities funding plans were successfully executed. The South African Broadcasting Corporation must ensure greater private sector participation and dispose its non-core assets. These are some of the conditions set by National Treasury for the SABC bailout. The public broadcaster needs more than $220 million urgently to fund its operations and pay debts. Other conditions include the split between the SABC's commercial and development productions. Treasury also wants the shareholder representative to appoint a restructuring team headed by a chief restructuring officer. But independent producers have warned against moves towards too much commercialization of the public broadcaster. Rihad Desai is the chairman of the Independent Producers Organization. We're opposed to this notion of public-private partnerships, which have been going uh, doing the round, that you know, we should uh, privatize uh, what's considered the public commercial services. In fact, the public broadcast services, one and two, are making far more money than uh, the so-called public commercial service, which is SABC3. The SABC is not the only uh, public broadcaster which runs on this hybrid funding model. That model is in crisis around the world. We need a, a much more open, inclusive conversation if we are to fix the SABC. The Bitcoin cryptocurrency has slumped more than 10% as fears of a crackdown of cryptocurrencies grew on mounting scrutiny of Facebook's planned Libra digital coin. Politicians and financial regulators across the world have called for close scrutiny of Facebook's Libra coin, with concerns ranging from consumer protection and privacy to its potential systematic risk, given the social media's giant's global reach. United States President Donald Trump last week criticized Bitcoin, Libra and other cryptocurrencies, demanding that firms seek a banking charter and subject themselves to U.S. and global regulations if they want to become a bank. The U.S. dollars trading at 355.86 Nigeria Naira, 10.47 Botswana Pula, at 101.79 Kenyan Shilling and at 12.44 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.73 Brazilian hail, 62.97 Russian ruble, 68.33 Indian rupee, 6.87 Chinese yuan, and a 13.93 South African rand. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 79 pence to the British pound and at 88 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,411 and platinum at $831 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is $66.63 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now it's time for your sporting news. Here is Neto Chimani. Thank you, Samara, from the Sports Desk. A very good afternoon. 
Starting off with cycling news, South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa has taken to social media to congratulate Daryl Impey on his Tour de France Stage 9 victory yesterday. Impey became just the second South African to win a stage of the Tour de France when he sprinted to victory in the stage between St. Etienne and Brioude. Robbie Hunter is the only other South African to have tasted success in cycling's greatest race when he won stage 11 of the 2007 race. MP riding for Australian outfit Mitchelton Scott was part of a 15-rider breakaway which ended up contesting stage honours after the peloton deemed them no threat to overall yellow jersey contention. On to volleyball news. Cameroon have retained the Africa Cup in Women's Volleyball Championship after beating Kenya in the final played on Sunday night in Cairo, Egypt. The Kenya national volleyball team Malkia Strikers went into the match having won all their matches from group stages of the African Women's Volleyball Nation Championship, including a 3-2 victory over Cameroon in Group B. Channel Africa's Francis Mudegi reports. It was a repeat of the 2017 final, which the West Africans had also won 3-1. Malkia had earlier in the competition come from behind in the group stages to stand Cameroon 3-2. In the match for third place, Senegal won the bronze medal after beating Egypt three sets to one. On to netball news. The Proteus netball team shocked group favourites Jamaica 55-52 at the Vitality Netball World Cup in Liverpool last night. The Sunshine Girls are ranked second in the world and South Africa are three places below them at number five. The two teams have played 15 times now with South Africa, winning three times and Jamaica winning 12 times. Minister of Sport Natim Tetwa is also in England. Well, firstly, we, we had to go through uh, and attend the Congress, uh, the International Netball Federation Congress, uh, where we were given an opportunity once more just to remind people uh, about South Africa because uh, we are going to be the next host of the Netball World Cup in, in 2023. So we went through those processes. The Proteas will play against Scotland tonight at 18.20 Central African time. On to rugby news. Toyota Cheetahs coach Franco Smith admits they do have to deal with some niggles and blows heading into their first South Africa's Premier Domestic Rugby Union competition Curry Cup match of the 2019 against the Blue Bulls at Loftus Versfeld in Pretoria, the country's capital city, on Friday. Yeah, look, we, we, we had a bit of a um, pre-season, so there's usually little niggles that mm-hmm. arise because the repetitive hard work during the week, you know, it just does tend to bring out some niggles. So we've got uh, Maris van Maro with a little bit of a hamstring strain. We've got Arnos Kutsia, um, you know, that, 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 that has got a bit, of, a bit of an ankle injury, but it's not really serious, it's just a bit of a maintenance. Obviously, he's going to Namibia before the World Cup later this year, so it's very important to manage him properly. We had Junior uh, Pokamala recovering nicely from a back strain. Um, Opa then is, is looking to get his foot on the field every day, so he's working really hard. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Etio Chemani.
This is Africa Digest. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again later on in the evening from 1900 hours Central African time. From myself, Samora Mingesi, producer Leander Maumet, technical producer Catherine Maleka, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, do send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a WhatsApp to plus 27763003327. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa one Taking us to the top of the hour is Baby Please by Kelly Kumalo featuring Robbie Malinga. We'll see you later.